0: A couple of years ago, my wife and I were on vacation with some of our extended family, and we all decided to get ice cream. And so we pulled up outside of a Coldstone Creamery, and Lori looked at me and she said, Why don't you go in and get something that you know I would like? Surprise me. Now, we had dated for a number of years, we'd been married for a number of years, and getting ice cream, especially when we were dating, was one of our favorite activities. And so i had been in cold stone creamery many many times with lori and i walked in with a lot of confidence that i could complete this mission but all it took was one look at the big board with all the different flavors to realize that even after all of those times got walking into cold stone creamery and being with lori as she ordered ice cream that i had no idea what it is that she would normally order. And so I did my best, and I brought it back out to the car. And I don't remember exactly what uh, I got, but I can tell you this. It was not the kind of ice cream and toppings that Lori would have chosen, and it was not even something that I wanted to eat. It tasted so (laughs) terrible. And the thing that happened in that moment was Lori was bothered, not just that I got terrible ice cream and toppings, but she was bothered that after all of that time, I didn't know her well enough to know what would make her happy. And she has a great point. After all of that time, I should have known what it was that would please her in that situation. When we're in a relationship with somebody, when we're with someone that we respect or admire, or in this case, love, then we tend to think, about how we should act by saying, well, what would please that person? Like if your favorite teacher gives you an assignment and you have great respect and admiration for that teacher, you're going to ask yourself, how can I do this assignment in a way that is pleasing to my teacher? It's the same goes with a a boss that you respect or if you're going on a first date with someone that you want to impress, you're going to say, how can I plan these activities and pick the restaurant in a way that is pleasing to them? And certainly in a marriage situation, when we love and respect our spouse, we should say to ourselves, how can I live my life in a way that is pleasing to them? You know, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who's a Christian, I want to get to the end of this life I want to leave this world and see God face to face and have him be pleased with the way that I've lived. And if you're a Christian, my guess is your desire is the same, that when you see God face to face, you want him to look at you and to say, well done. And so the question I want us to think about this morning and the question we're going to look at in the Bible is how do we live a life that is pleasing to god i mean is it even possible is it even possible first of all to please god and secondly if it is possible how do we go about doing that what does it look like to live a life that is pleasing to god my hope and i bet it's your hope too is that when you're done here god looks at you and he gives you a giant thumbs up and says you did a great job so how do we go about doing that and if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know we've been in the books of First and Second Thessalonians, looking at letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to early followers of Jesus. And in the verses we're going to look at today, Paul talks about this specific topic. How can you, how could they and how can we live a life that's pleasing to God? So we're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. And in the very first two verses of this chapter— Paul helps give us an answer to our question. He says this He says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do it more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul says to the church, and he's saying to you this morning, If your desire is to live a life that pleases God, there's good news. You can absolutely do it. So what does that life look like? I mean, if it's possible to live a life that is pleasing to God, what does that life look like? Well, Paul gives us a really very simple uh, definition here. Paul says the life that is pleasing to God is the life that does what it should and does it more and more. The life that is pleasing to God is the life— that does what it should, and that does it more and more. And this recognizes two very important things. And the first of all, this definition that Paul gives us reminds us that God is the one who is, the, who is able to determine, who does determine, how we should live. That God is the one in this relationship that has that right That just if I'm asking how do I please my teacher or how do I please my boss or how do I please my spouse, that in asking that question, I'm saying they're the ones that are in the position of power here. I'm willing to adjust my life to what would please them. The same thing's true in our relationship with God. This is not about us saying how I'm going to live my life and God needs to adjust his standards so that he's pleased with me. This is about us asking the question, okay, God, you're the one who gets to set the standards. You're the one who gets to call the shots here. Now, how do you want me to live? What should I do? And you have a leg up on the early church because in this case, as Paul says in verse two, they know what to do, the the Thessalonians, because Paul told them what Jesus had said to him. But you don't need an intermediary. You have God's word. You have exactly what Jesus said and what God has said throughout history to his people. And so you can go right to this book and see what God says about how you should live. So the, the life that's pleasing to God, Paul says, is the life that does what it should. And then he says this, and it does what it should more and more. And that recognizes not just that God's the one who gets to call the shots, but that you and I are on a journey. When you first put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are, the big term is, you are justified. That is, you go from being guilty and separated from God to being forgiven and restored in relationship with God. But then you enter a lifelong process. And the fancy term, the seminary word, the theological term for this is sanctification. And this is a lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ over time. And Paul, in talking about the life that pleases God, recognizes two things. One, God gets to tell us how to live, and so we should do what we should based on what God says. And secondly, we should be progressing over time We should be able to look back at our Christian life six months ago, a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, and say, look at where I was, and look where I am now. I have been progressing more and more over time, and doing what God has called me to do. So, good news. You can live a life that pleases God. How do you do it? Well, you do what you should, you do what God says, and you do it more and more over time. Now, Paul gives the early church, and he gives us a very specific example. He actually gives two examples in this passage, but we're going to save the second one for another sermon. He gives two specific examples. We're going to talk about the first one today. And he gives it to the church, and he gives it to us, because in their culture in that day and time, there was this this area where the people knew that they should do as as they ought, and they should do it more and more over time. But in this particular area, some in the church were not. In fact, they were doing what they shouldn't, and they were doing that more and more over time. And so Paul really calls them out here. And it's an important example for the early church, and it's an important example for us too, because I think what we're going to find is that just because these people lived 2,000 years ago, what they were dealing with in in their culture is very similar to what you and I deal with today. Look at verse 3 here through verse 7 and see what Paul says. For this is the will of God, That your, here's that word, sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness." The early Christians in Thessalonica, they were converted out of a culture that was saturated and obsessed with sex. I mean, think back to your Roman history class in high school or in college. You don't have to go that far to recognize that in that Greco-Roman, the Greek-influenced Roman world that that the culture was fully saturated with sex. And there were a lot of activities that were going on. Prostitution was rampant. adultery was rampant. In fact, the early Greek uh, statesman, Demosthenes, he says it this way. He summed up the culture, and he says this. He says, you know, mistresses we keep for our pleasure and concubines for our day-to-day well-being, and we keep wives around for childbearing. And that was the attitude of the people in that time. And even in the city of Thessalonica, there was a temple where cultic practices were practiced and many of those were around prostitution and other um, sexual acts that would have been outside the realms of what God calls his people to. And so Paul knows these, these converts, these early Christians, are being converted out of a culture that is fully saturated with sex. And so in their, in their desire to live a life that's pleasing to God, to do as they should more and more, some of them are falling backwards when it comes to living up to God's standard and doing what God says around this area of sex and sexuality. Now, I don't know if this reminds you of any other cultures that you might be familiar with, but certainly there could be a lot of parallels, and there are a lot of parallels between our culture and the culture of the early church. Our culture is infatuated and saturated with sex. Uh, It's only a click away in our culture, and it's available everywhere. We sell with sex, and sexuality leads the headlines many times in our daily news. And so just like the early first century was was sex saturated, so is our culture the same. And we are converted out of this world into living a life that's very, very different. I mean, this is God's rules for sex. God says that sex is reserved for one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. That's very different than the world in which we live. It's very different than the world in which the Thessalonians lived. Paul says, well, why don't they do it in verse six? Why why don't the other people in our world do what God is calling us to do? And he says very simply, they don't know God. They don't know him. And so we ought not to look at the world and expect that a world that does not know God is going to to think the same and do the same things that that we as Christians should do when it comes to sex and sexuality. But Paul says to the early church, and he says to you, you do know God, and you know what God requires. So you want to know if you're living a life that's pleasing to God? Ask yourself this question. Are you doing what you should more and more over time? And very specifically, when it comes to this area of sex, are you doing what you should more and more over time? Paul says, if you know God, if you know God, there are two things that you should pay attention to. And the first is this. He says, if you know God, then you need to learn how to, in verse 4 he says it, control your own body. You need to learn to control your own body. Now, the Greek phrase there, if we were to translate it literally it would say something like this you need to learn how to possess your own vessel and i think based on on what i've read and what i've studied that our english translators here are being very g-rated for us and are sanitizing a little bit of what paul is saying because what paul means by this possess your own vessel many agree and i agree with them is that paul's really using a euphemism here that Paul isn't just saying control your own whole body. That Paul is saying, hey, you want to do what God wants you to do? You want to live the way that you should in this area? Each one of you needs to learn how to possess your own vessel. Each one of you needs to learn how to control what's happening down there. And Paul says you got to get a handle on that because God calls us to, ma- to put boundaries, specific boundaries around sex and sexuality. Our world thinks that we will experience greater happiness and greater freedom if we remove boundaries around sex and sexuality. That the more we remove boundaries, the happier and more satisfied we'll be. Well, we forget sometimes that true freedom exists not in the removal of boundaries, but having the right boundaries in place. Think of a fish tank. You could walk up to a fish tank and you could say, I'm going to make this fish happy by removing its boundaries. And you could smash the side of the fish tank and water would go all over the floor and the fish would go all over the floor. And you would say, go and be free and enjoy your freedom. But what does true freedom look like in that situation for the fish? well, it looks like a clean tank with, with, uh, with walls and filtered water and clean rocks and other things for the, for the fish to swim through, that the right environment actually creates greater freedom. And as Christians, we trust that the God who created sex and sexuality knows the right boundaries to put in in place. Not so that our life is miserable and we miss out, but so that we experience the greatest amount of joy and freedom in this thing that God has designed. So when God puts the boundaries of one man and one woman together for life and the covenant of marriage, he's not trying to steal our happiness. He is putting us within the environment and the conditions that he has created this thing to be enjoyed to the fullest. And so as believers, we try to do what God says to do and to possess our own vessels. And here's the second thing that Paul says, that we should not harm a brother or sister in this area. You know, when Paul talks about sex, sexual immorality, he uses the Greek word porneia, and you can probably guess the English words that we get from that word. But that word encompasses a lot more than just the sexual act it involves the power that some people exert over other people around sex. It involves lust and leering at somebody else. And what Paul is saying is, is you know, in all of these areas, you don't want to harm a brother or sister. So certainly, if you were to, to have an affair with someone else's husband or wife, you would cause great harm to to those people. And, and yet, we would all agree with that. But Paul would expand it even further. And say, anytime you're you're lusting after someone or anytime you're engaging in those sorts of activities that you are causing harm and living outside the way that God says that we should live. And you might say, what is the big deal? What is the big deal if I go online and watch someone or something or I go to a club and watch somebody dance? Like, What is the big deal with that? I'm not harming anybody. Well, you may not be acting against that person's will. They may be doing it willingly but you are acting against their best interest. You might not be acting against their will, but you are acting 100% against their best interest. You are participating in something that leads you and them further away from God and not closer to Him. And so Paul says, you want to know how you should live in this specific area so that you live a life pleasing to God? Learn to control your body, possess your vessel, and don't do anything that would harm another person, and that includes not just the physical act of sex in, in certain situations, but that also includes your heart and your mind and your activities around what you look at and what you take in. Now, you may look at that and you may see that, and you may say to yourself, "This is this is ridiculous. It is unenlightened. It is uninformed." But I want to remind you something that Paul reminds the church because they had the same reaction, some of them, because they came out of this sex-saturated culture where they participated in all these things and they would say to themselves, well, what is the deal with this restrictive Christian view? So Paul reminds us of something in this last verse, two things that are important. That if you decide to reject this, not only are you going to end up leading a life that is displeasing to God, but it's something more serious than that. You may say, well, I'm gonna reject this. I'm not gonna buy into the teachings of a pastor. I'm not gonna buy into the teachings of Paul or I'm not gonna buy into the teachings of church. But you're not just rejecting a person or church. You're rejecting someone else. Look at what verse eight says. Paul writes, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards, not man, Paul's saying, you're not disregarding me, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And Paul reminds us of something. We look at this and we say, I mean, this is impossible. To, I mean, literally not engage in any of this and to be perfect in this area, it's impossible. Well, don't reject it, Paul says, because you're not rejecting anyone but God. And if you want to live a life pleasing to God, you don't want to reject him. But recognize that God is the one who gives you his Holy Spirit. That God God knows you can't do this on your own. And so he gives to you and to me his spirit who walks with us and who empowers us to live the life that God calls us to. I mean, it reminds me of something that Jesus said when Jesus was on this earth. Jesus said this, and he said it in John chapter 8, verse 29. This is what he said. He who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And let me remind you that the God who created you and who made you and who loves you has told you to do certain things, and he has not left you alone. He has given you his spirit to empower you and walk with you so that you can do what God has called you to do. If you want to know if you're living a life that is pleasing to God, if you want to know if what you're doing you should be doing, and if you're doing it more and more, first of all, you need to know God. You need to know who He is and what He says. The best way to do that is to read His Word. But if you want to know if you're doing it more and more, ask yourself this question Is today better than yesterday? Is today better than yesterday? and let me ask it around this idea of sex and sexuality, is today better than yesterday? If today Lori and I drove up to Coldstone Creamery and she looked at me and she said, okay, go in and get something that I would like, I can't promise you that I would 100% come back and absolutely nail it with the flavor and the toppings that she would like. But I can tell you this, I would certainly do better than I did the last time? I would do better today than I did yesterday. I think that's a good question for us to ask. God calls us to holiness and perfection, but He recognizes that there is a process that we'll be walking through, a lifelong process of becoming more like Christ, and He gives us His Spirit to do that. And so, as the theologian John Calvin said when he talked about sanctification and becoming more like Christ, he said this He said, Let us not despair at the slightness of our success. For if today outpaces yesterday, all hope is not lost. And I love that line. If today outpaces yesterday, all hope is not lost. So I ask you again, is today better than yesterday? If the answer is no, then take a moment and repent, go back to the Lord. And tell him you recognize that you have been living a life that is not pleasing to him, that you have not been doing what you should and you have not been doing it more and more and ask that he would empower you by his spirit to do this more. And if the answer is yes, don't get a big head because it wasn't your work. It was the spirit of God's work in you. So go back to the Lord and thank him for giving you the strength to do what you should and to do it more and more and ask the Holy Spirit to do it again today. Our worship song, our worship team is going to lead us in a song and it's gonna start off with these words. You are good, you are good when there is nothing good in me. And as they sing those words, would you take a moment and do some self-reflection and ask yourself in your life is today when it comes to pleasing God, when it comes to doing as you should and doing it more and more, is our is today better than yesterday if you want to live a life that's pleasing to god go and do what you should and do it more and more